the History Channel original podcast. History this week, June 21st, 1855. I'm Sally Helm. About 10 days ago, Ralph Waldo Emerson read something new. A self-published manuscript by an unknown Brooklyn journalist which you might think would be beneath Emerson's notice. He is, at this time, the king of American letters. But Emerson reads a lot. His house, as it's preserved today, has some 3,500 books on the shelves. He once wrote to his brother that he hoped to crowd so many books and papers into the place that it shall have as much wit as it can carry. But even among all that competition, this manuscript stood out. So today, Emerson sits down to write its author a letter. Dear sir, he begins. Then he calls the new work a wonderful gift, the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. It's the kind of praise that a young writer could only dream of getting from a writer of Emerson's stature. And yet, here it is laid down in ink by Emerson's own hand. The recipient of this letter is Walt Whitman, who, at 36 years old, has just published his very first work, an astonishing volume of poetry called Leaves of Grass. He's unknown at this moment, but Emerson is among the first to see where Whitman is heading. I greet you at the beginning of a great career, Emerson writes, which must have had a long foreground somewhere for such a start. Today, the foreground, and some of the ground. What made Walt Whitman's work so electrifying to a man like Emerson? And why, just five years later, would Emerson be walking in circles with Whitman around the Boston Common, imploring him not to publish? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Getting a letter from Ralph Waldo Emerson may not sound like a big deal, especially if you've heard the name Walt Whitman. But understand, in 1855, Whitman is a nobody. And Emerson is the tastemaker in American life, the writer whose opinion matters most. I think I would be nervous in his presence. Jerome Loving taught American literature at Texas A&M for over 40 years. He's the author of several books on Whitman and one double biography on the literary lives of Whitman and Emerson. One big influence on Whitman's poetry was opera. The other influences were the King James Bible and Emerson. When Whitman sets out to be a poet, his resume is as spotty as Emerson's is sparkling. Whitman attended a public school in Brooklyn until the age of 12 when he left to take a menial job. Emerson went to Harvard. 
Whitman's co-workers have been teachers and construction workers. Emerson's colleagues come from New England's literary elite. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Henry David Thoreau, no doubt other celebrated men named Henry. Emerson is a scholar, a writer, a philosopher. He was once a Unitarian minister, but he left that job to invent a new literary and spiritual movement. He calls it transcendentalism. He decided as he proclaimed in his most famous essay, Nature, in 1836, that scripture, the Bible, was the testimony of dead men. It was in the past rather than the present. And if you looked at nature itself, maybe that's where we're being told something. For Emerson, evidence of God is all around us. You can see that in the natural world. And, he says, we connect with God through the soul. The body, on the other hand, is just the soul's temporary abode. This idea is very Victorian. A lot of people at this time looked askance at the body. You did not talk about the body in America. You wouldn't even refer to somebody's arm. You would say limb as if a tree. <laughs> I mean, you, you didn't go near it. Emerson is publishing his philosophy in essays, talking about it in well-attended lectures. He's hanging out with the Henrys and refining his thoughts on transcendentalism. But all the while, he is also on a personal quest, nursing a kind of obsession. Emerson himself writes prose, but he wants to find the person who can distill his ideas into poetry. Mrs. Emerson, we'll have our conversations with nature. Hmm. But can we report those conversations back to the rest of us? No, you need a poet. Hmm. Poet not only has his conversation with nature, but he has the linguistic talent or gift to bring that back to the rest of us. The poet would bring Emerson's transcendental ideas to the people, make them better understand. And Emerson thought that poet needed a voice that was new and uniquely American. Before the 1850s, English literature was literature, and the English themselves made fun of, of American literature. There was one critic, a Scotsman, I think, who declared, he says, whoever reads an American book? The most popular novelist at the time is the Englishman Charles Dickens. He made two visits over to this country, and he was worshipped. The most popular poems are rhyming epics written by people like Emerson's friend Henry Longfellow. But Emerson feels like none of this is quite right. It's not enough. He wants American writers and artists to develop something new, something homegrown, to reflect the spirit of the young country. In March of 1842, he's on the road giving lectures. It was a lecture series called The Times. Hmm, about uh, like our times. Yeah, the times. yeah, our times, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and there was on different subjects, and one was the poet. The poet. Emerson stands in a lecture hall in New York City and reads his essay. We need a great poet, he says, a great American poet. When he lifts his great voice, men gather to him and forget all that is past. And there was a 22-year-old journalist in the audience, and he heard that lecture and wrote about it, said, it's the finest thing we've heard anywhere at any time. That 22-year-old journalist, Walt Whitman. Professor Karen Carboner of New York University 
told us that when we find Walter Whitman in the audience of this lecture, he's a 22-year-old reporter coming of age in New York. He yearns for greatness, but has a long way to go. He reminds me a lot of my students. He's a bit aimless. He's not quite sure if he's going to write a book of poetry, a novel, or a play. Whitman has been building houses in the developing city of Brooklyn, just across the river from New York, or Manhattan, as we'd say today. He's from a working-class family, largely self-educated. He reads everything he can get his hands on, and he's tried writing some poems. Some 20-odd poems, all rhyming, all sort of gothic feeling, you know, nothing really outstanding. In his free time, Whitman likes almost nothing better than to plunge into city life. Riding the omnibuses up and down Broadway, chatting with the drivers. Standing on a crowded ferry as it crosses from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And while working as a carpenter, he starts writing down what he sees. The legend goes that while he's working, he's carrying a bucket to work with his lunch and also some handmade notebooks and constantly writing notes down um, about what he's seeing. And Whitman is learning just from street level about people, about culture, but mostly just really about himself. He's looking, feeling, smelling, touching, listening. And when one day in that lecture hall, he hears Emerson call for the great American poet, it's like he suddenly knows what he's meant to do. Whitman was quoted as later saying, I was simmering, simmering, simmering. Emerson brought me to a boil. Emerson will later wonder what the foreground of Whitman's career was. And on that day in 1842, Whitman is in it. He's working as a journalist, and the poems that he now begins to write show off a reporter's eye for detail. He describes the blab of the pave, the tires of carts and stuff of boot soles and talk of the promenaders. Journalism, you get your head out of the clouds, I guess you might say. You know, it's coming from the streets. For Emerson, he comes out of the church. Whitman writes about the everyman, what he knows the heavy omnibus, the driver with his interrogating thumb, the clank of the shod horses on the granite floor. He works and writes for years. And by 1855, he is finally ready to publish a book of his poetry. He calls it Leaves of Grass. Grass, by the way, was a slang term for printing that the printers would do for their own things when they weren't busy. Leaves, of course, would be the pages of a book. But for Whitman, grass was something else. It was green, hopeful. It was everywhere, rich or poor. And listen to this. Loving told us, Whitman does something unusual in the poem that opens this book, Song of Myself. He reflects on grass. Grass as a part of nature, sure, as Emerson would see it. But also... Growing among Black folks as among white... Grass as an equalizing element, available to all. I give them the same, I receive them the same. And he takes it a step further. He doesn't just write about the grass as a gift of nature shared by the people. He writes about the people themselves. A farmer, mechanic, artist, gentleman, sailor, Quaker. A prisoner, fancy man, rowdy, lawyer, physician, priest. 
Whitman said, I am the poet of the body and I am the poet of the soul. Now for Everson, the body or nature was simply an emblem to get to the soul. But Whitman celebrated them equally. He is also writing in a new way. His poems in this book, they don't rhyme at all. Free verse, of course, existed before Whitman's time, but he sort of pushes this at an America that's eagerly digesting very rhymed, very predictable verse. Whitman's verse is not predictable. It hurtles forward like river rapids. He writes of the sound of the belched words of my voice loosed to the eddies of the wind and of a few light kisses, a few embraces, a reaching around of arms. This is not Victorian. And it's not like the popular poetry that has come before. No wonder no publisher would touch it. Especially because Whitman was a working man with no standing in the literary world. Here was a guy who grew up in a household of barely literate parents, didn't really go to school, right? Had to drop out at age 11 or 12. So he just didn't have any connections to work. Well, he did have one. To a little printing shop in Brooklyn Heights, owned by two Scottish brothers. They mostly print legal forms, that kind of thing. But Whitman was good friends with these two guys and said, look, you know, I've got this book and I'd really like to print it. And they, they liked him, so they agreed and they said, but you're going to have to help. Whitman has to pay to print the book all by himself. And he has to work on it in the print shop, setting the type. That part, Carboner says, doesn't bother him. I think he was a bit of a control freak, really a DIY conceptual artist. He designs this book cover to cover. It's dark green with the title on the front in gold. The letters are styled like plants. The L and the G seem to be growing roots. On the inside, all it says, leaves of grass, period. Huge type. Brooklyn, New York, 1855. Usually, especially on the title page, you would have the name of a publisher on there proudly with the author. There's no author. The way this title page looks, it looks like Brooklyn wrote it. But Whitman isn't just being modest. On that title page, he also includes an image of himself. Most of the time, frontispieces were just headshots because the head is the seat of learning. And really, why should you be interested in anything except the mind of a poet? But Whitman kind of puts almost his entire body up looking kind of like an everyman in Brooklyn, chino pants, an Oxford shirt, and this incredibly confident, almost sexually aggressive person looking right at the reader. Even Whitman's choice of font is bold and in your face. He picks out a title page typeface that's typically used not for literary works, but for advertising. Normally, you'd want a more discreet, I mean, this is poetry, right? This is sophisticated stuff. But Walt was thinking much more broadly about what poetry is and also who should read it. And he wants this book, which he's making himself by hand in the print shop, to express that vision. For him, the physical object is almost as important as the poems inside. So when you are holding that book, as Whitman says, this is no book. Who touches this touches a man, right? He really put himself into that book. So the reading experience is visceral. 
right? Almost palpably physical. You are holding that poet. Whitman prints about 800 copies of Leaves of Grass and puts them up for sale for two bucks a piece. But they're not selling, so he has to lower the price to $1.25. No critics are paying the book any attention, so Whitman writes some anonymous reviews himself all about how great the book is. And he sends out some free copies to notable writers, hoping that they might take an interest. None of them does take an interest, except one. When Ralph Waldo Emerson reads Leaves of Grass, he knows he has found the poet. So he writes the unknown Walt Whitman a letter. And apparently Whitman carried that letter physically on his person, like folded it and put it in a pocket, you know, breast pocket, and just treasured it. Jerome Loving has seen the original letter, which is kept in the Library of Congress, but he also showed us a copy. This is Emerson's famous letter to Whitman, written in Whitman's hand. Hmm, that, he copied it out? Yes. He recopied yes. it? Yes, here it is. Huh. Whitman doesn't keep the letter to himself. He tells a newspaper editor, you'll never believe who wrote to me. And the editor says, well, let me publish this letter. So without thinking that maybe you might want to ask permission of the author before publishing his letter to you, It was published in the uh, New York Tribune, I believe, on October 10th. This kind of self-promotion just isn't done. Up in Boston, Emerson's Circle of Henrys cannot believe the gall. They were outraged at this blue-collar, you know, New Yorker. It would dare to, to do that. But Emerson himself, while he thought it was probably a bit out of place, did not take it back, didn't complain. In fact, in his journal for December of that year, he said, I struck my task and went to Brooklyn. Hmm, I struck my task, so I dropped what I was going to do that yes, day. Yeah, came to New York City, took, took the, the Brooklyn Ferry, which Whitman would make famous, uh, over to Brooklyn. Quote, unquote, way out in Brooklyn. Nobody had been to Brooklyn. Karen Carboner is familiar with the Whitman family home. She often takes her classes there. It's on 99 Ryerson Street in an area called Clinton Hill, close to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. In 1855, there's like a big free black neighborhood down there and Brooklyn is still being built, so there's empty lots. It's not like going to Lenox Mass and seeing, you know, Emerson's grand house. The Whitman House? It's a wood frame building built around the time that Whitman moved in. A very strong looking, but very simple looking house. So I can only imagine how Mr. Emerson, Mr. Harvard Emerson, Mr. Unitarian Minister Emerson, when he's walking down Myrtle Avenue and he comes up to this house, apparently he met Louisa, Walt's mother, a big woman, usually wearing a Quaker cap. And uh, Whitman recalled it later. He said, my mother answered the door and he said, is this Mr. Whitman there? Very soft voice. And then they walked all the way back from Brooklyn to uh, Manhattan, where Emerson was staying uh, at a hotel. During that visit, Whitman takes Emerson to a restaurant that's so loud and shocking to Emerson's Boston sensibilities that he describes it as a fire engine society. One of Emerson's biographers, Ralph L. Rusk, 
writes that Emerson seems to have been only mildly surprised when his poet shouted for a tin mug for his beer. The two men talk about poetry, presumably about how much Emerson loved Leaves of Grass. And when Whitman is ready to publish a revised edition of the book the following year, he will take the liberty of using Emerson's letter once more. On the spine of the book, he took the words, I greet you at the beginning of a great career, R.W. Emerson, in gold letters, he turned Emerson into a book blurber. <laughs> it's a genius move. It's like but a really yes, great self-promotion. Yes, but that particular book, which was an expansion of Leaves of Grass from 12 poems to, I think, 36, Emerson hadn't even read that book. It does make me curious about Whitman's ego, I guess. Yes, like, it's gigantic. It's gigantic. Okay. And does he think I'm this new American poet? I'm doing something no one's ever done before? I think he did. I'm not sure Emerson ultimately agreed. A new prolific period of Whitman's writing career will put a strain on this relationship because Whitman is about to stray even further from the hallowed realm of the immortal soul and towards the wild domain of the body. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Over the course of his life, Walt Whitman will revise Leaves of Grass again and again. But this period between editions two and three sees an especially radical change. Whitman loved controversy. I think one of the most famous lines in Song of Myself is, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. Whitman, during these years, is spending a lot of time in New York's bohemian scene and frequenting a beer cellar called Foff's. There, he joins a group that's now considered to have been one of the first gay men's clubs in the country. I think many of us who work on Whitman fully realize that he favored the love of men, though he never admitted that. In the late 1850s, Whitman writes a series of poems called Live Oak with Moss. Really, his secret same-sex love poems. And for me, they are among the most moving, beautiful poems that he wrote. I'd love to read one of these poems now, just to highlight that, if that's okay. (coughs) Karen Carpenter has published a book on this series of poems. She read to us from one called Calamus Nine. For the one I cannot content myself without, 
Soon I saw him content himself without me. Hours when I am forgotten. Oh, weeks and months are passing, but I believe I am never to forget. Sullen and suffering hours, I am ashamed, but it is useless. I am what I am. Uh, I think every time I read that, I actually want to cry a little bit <laughs> because uh, it's it's been such a meaningful poem, not just for me, but for so many of my students uh, who find this such an honest confessional. This poem written sometime in the 1850s, well before the invention of the word homosexual. And yet this, I mean, it's a coming out poem. He's like, I am ashamed, but it is useless. I am what I am. And he's clearly using a male pronoun for the loved one that is missing here. In other poems in that third edition, Whitman talks radically and openly about bodies of both men and women in a way that Americans just were not doing at the time. We are talking about Victorian America, right? Even curved piano legs were covered with pantaloons, right? And then you get Walt Whitman writing I Sing the Body Electric with this glorious listing of body parts. Reading that list aloud takes Carpenter almost three minutes. Ribs, belly, backbone, joints of the backbone, hips, hip sockets, hip strength, inward and outward round, man balls, man root, strong set of thighs, well carrying the trunk above, leg fibers, knees. It's so intense, right? Because for me, I can actually feel the movement of those lines down my arm to like my fingernails. And in this piece, you get that kind of joy, right? That Whitman has in every single part of the body. For Ralph Waldo Emerson, all of this is a lot. In 1860, Whitman is ready to publish his new, more risque edition of Leaves of Grass. That merch, Whitman is visiting Boston. He has a real publisher now, and he needs to go see them. And Emerson shows up at the office, too. The publishers have consulted him about this new edition, and he tells Whitman he wants to have a talk. And they walked on Boston Common as they had this conversation for an hour, two hours. And so Emerson said, Listen, I like your book. It's great. But, Emerson says, if you want this book to sell, just leave out those racy poems. People are just going to see them. They're going to see red. And they won't get to appreciate the great poetry that you've really written. It's not that Emerson himself thinks the poems are bad or too much, but he thinks the public will think so. And that this raciness will distract from the poetry itself the book won't get the attention it deserves. It's an eminently reasonable argument. As Whitman himself later writes, I could never hear the points better put. And then I felt, down in my soul, the clear and unmistakable conviction to disobey all. He doesn't want to take out all the sexuality and bodily power that he's put into this new edition. Whitman, as he remembered, he said, I asked Emerson, he said, If I cut it out, would there really be still a book there? Emerson says yes. And Whitman says, will the book with the cuts be as good as the book without the cuts? 
He watches Emerson's reaction and later describes it. This seemed to disturb him just a bit. Then he smiled and said, I did not say as good a book. I said, a good book. That's not good enough for Whitman. So he decides instead to pursue my own way. He says, I decided to go ahead and and do it. He publishes the new edition, including parts of the Live Oak with Moss poems, in 1860. It was promptly banned in Boston. The New York Times describes this new edition as more reckless and vulgar than Whitman's past work. And Emerson? Emerson sort of got blamed because he was kind of associated with Whitman because of that scandalous letter. The Boston Post writes, The most charitable conclusion at which we can arrive is that both Whitman's leaves and Emerson's laudation had a common origin in temporary insanity. In other words, only a crazy person could be behind this book. After this 1860 edition, the relationship between Whitman and Emerson fades. Emerson does help Whitman out a few more times, but they don't have the close relationship that that first admiring letter might have predicted. Though Jerome Loving says, this might, in the end, have been to Whitman's benefit because he forges his own identity as a poet. He goes his own way. And by the time he dies in 1892, he is recognized as a lion of American letters. And he has disciples of his own. And they kept the drum beating for him, maybe after he died. He's gone on to influence generations of poets up to the present day. Whitman is very modern in many ways. Uh, The use of slang, the use of the colloquial in poetry. And more focus on the body? Is that part of the impact? Oh, yeah. The body, of course, hadn't been invited to the party before that. Today, Whitman's fame has probably eclipsed Emerson's. It's hard to overstate his impact. I mean, every, every pope loves Whitman. He's the father of American poetry. Everyone goes back to him. Because Whitman opened up the vast new terrain of the body, but he could hardly explore it all himself. As the great modernist poet Ezra Pound once said of Whitman, it was you that broke the new wood. Now is the time for carving. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guests, Karen Carboner, professor of literature at NYU and president of the Walt Whitman Initiatives, and Jerome Loving, author of Emerson, Whitman, and the American Muse, and Walt Whitman, The Song of Himself. Carpenter published a new edition of Whitman's Live Oak with Moss poems, along with illustrator Brian Selznick. You can find out more about the Walt Whitman Initiative's programming, including efforts to preserve the Whitman home at 99 Ryerson Street, on their website, waltwhitmaninitiative.org. Thanks also to Matt Cohen, Ed Folsom, and Kenneth Price, co-directors of the Walt Whitman Archive, 
and to Ivy Wilson, editor of Whitman Noir, Black America and the Good Gray Poet. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Morgan Givens and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.